Well, if you'd open your Bibles to the 27th Psalm. Somebody once acknowledged that war is the megaphone of sin. It's an interesting description because if you think about it, war amplifies the fact that we are a fallen world. It amplifies the fact that we have a corrupt nature. Every time a war breaks out, it reminds us the world is not getting better and better, as social evolutionists like to say, that the heart of man is still wicked. It is amplified. And it causes us to yearn. As the second to the last verse in the Bible says, even so come, Lord Jesus. It causes us to yearn for the Lord's coming when He will set everything right. One of the soldiers that stationed in Iraq as a young man by the name of Aaron, and I think he was one of the first babies I dedicated when I moved from California. Now he's a soldier. And Aaron is with the 2nd Marine Expedition Brigade. And war has shown him, among other things, how hostile regimes can treat their own people and how thankful he is for where he was raised. In an email to his parents recently, he said, I love the fact that we live in a place where we can have our own religion, pray our own prayers, or choose not to do either. But no matter what, you will not be persecuted by the government, shot or hung or publicly humiliated. War has taken center stage the last few weeks in our country, not only our country, but virtually every newspaper around the globe has headlines about the war happening in the Middle East. It's also taken center stage here in this pulpit for the last few weeks, and there's a reason for that. Because war not only amplifies sin, it amplifies our need to have right priorities. There's something about a situation, a time like this, that causes everybody to wake up differently the next day and the subsequent days after that. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells an interesting story about the cities of Barcelona and Madrid, Spain, prior, just prior, to the Spanish Civil War. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a British physician, and he noted that before the Spanish Civil War, that there were psychiatric clinics filling these places that were filled with patients. He called them neurotics. They had neuroses. They had weekly treatments for anxieties and personal problems. And then came the Civil War in Spain. And he said, one of the interesting byproducts of the Civil War, among other things, is that those clinics emptied instantly. He said, everyone was cured by a greater anxiety. And what he meant by that is suddenly, instead of my personal neuroses and problems, it was this huge anxiety of, what if I go back home and I don't have one? What if my husband and my son, my brother, doesn't come back from the war alive? And so he said, the greater anxieties often cure the lesser anxieties. Well, the war in Iraq the last few weeks has brought national and international anxiety. People are nervous as they turn on the television set, it seems, day by day. And other issues, you've noticed, have taken a back seat. 
They're out there, but they're not as prominent anymore. You don't hear as much about health care the last few weeks. You don't hear as much about the stock market. Oh, it's out there, but not as much. You don't hear as much about the new movies that are out or what sports teams are playing. There are other things, there is other concerns that we're worried about. I counted the other day in the front of the New York Times 15 articles, 15 articles, all of them about the war in Iraq. A greater anxiety that overshadows everything else. Psalm 27, look at it. It is a psalm obviously written during a national crisis, a war of some kind, Some think it was the civil war between David and Absalom. Others think it was the fight between David and King Saul. Others place it at another period. But it is a war psalm. Notice some of the words, wicked, enemies, foes, army, war, false witnesses, breathe out violence. That then is the substance, the background, the meat of the psalm. But there are other words like strength, confident, beauty, sing, salvation, goodness. I've chosen this psalm because it gives to us what I believe is the believer's attitudes during a time of war. The believer's attitudes. And I've called this message, Five Firm Steps for Battle-Weary Hearts. When the war first started, the first week we jumped right in because we had just finished covering the fall of man in the Garden of Eden the week before. Then the war started. And so the first week we talked about the reality of war, historically, prophetically, some of the reasons for war, pride, selfishness, religion, the ultimate remedy for it when Christ comes. Last week we looked at the concept of the just war, that there are actually times when fighting is morally right under certain circumstances. And we saw that historically and biblically. Today we look at it differently. I want to take it away from the philosophical to the very practical. In this study, it's not facts about war. It's not your position on war. It's what our attitude is to be in the midst of war. Five firm steps during this slippery time. So look at the first verse, and let's jump right into it. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and my foes, they stumbled and fell. Without reading all of verse 3, notice the word army in verse 3 and war rising against him. The first step, the first firm step to take during a time like this, I would call it vigilance. The words that we just read, the situation of the war and the heartache at David's time, were very real parts of David's world. They were happening all around him. He was a soldier who was in the midst of threatening warfare. It takes vigilance and awareness of what's going on around you. You don't close your eyes to it. You don't deny it. You don't say, I'll click my heels three times and it'll go away. We live in a a different world, a new and a different world. After September 11, 2001, a whole new department in our government was developed, the Department of Homeland Security, a whole government agency now devoted 
to dealing with border issues, transportation issues, responding to biological, nuclear, chemical, radiological warfare. A department developed to threat analysis and information. We are becoming more aware. In fact, after 9-11, we are becoming more like traditional Israelis than we are traditional Americans. One article I found said, America was shocked by the September 11th attacks and suddenly the United States no longer knew peace on its soil. For one day, America knew what it was like to be Israel. Now, as Christians, we're not to be naive. We're not to live in a dream world. But we live in a real world. And what is happening in the real world, we should be aware as believers, is a part of our world. The Bible never promises immunity from pain, hardship, suffering, or heartache. It doesn't say, believe in Christ and all of the bad people will go away. All of the suffering will go away. In fact, what the Bible teaches us is how to suffer well. How to do it right. And the first step here is vigilance. Jesus spoke very candidly about the Christian life. Listen to his words. God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Yeah, but I'm a Christian. Yeah, but so what? You live in a fallen world. And sometimes God protects you. Oh, he's done it many times. Sometimes God calms the storm for you. But at other times, God will calm you in the midst of the storm. Reader's Digest put it this way, expecting not to be treated badly just because you're a good person is like expecting an angry bull not to attack you just because you're a vegetarian. (laughs) Job even said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. There was a vigilant man, a man who understood his world. God doesn't automatically remove pain, suffering, disease, or accidents, or war. Here's David writing as it's happening all around him. Chuck Colson gave us great words of wisdom when he wrote, It is absurd for Christians to constantly seek new demonstrations of God's power, that is, to expect a miraculous answer to every need, from curing ingrown toenails to finding parking places. This only leads to faith in miracles rather than faith in God. So I would say the first firm step to take during a time like this is the step of vigilance, awareness of what's happening around you. Number two is the firm step of confidence. We already read the first verse and part of the second. Verse three says, Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear The war may rise against me. In this, I will be confident. The most typical emotion during a time of war is fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of the unexpected. What's going to happen? That's why soldiers are trained to harness their fear. They often do a much much better job than civilians do at this. 70% of Americans are living in some kind of fear, a Gallup poll took a couple weeks ago said. 70%, though 79% of us expect a favorable outcome, at the same time there is a fear of the unexpected, the unknown. The New Testament uses an interesting term for fear, often translated worry. 
It's a Greek word, merimnao, that means to rip or divide one's mind. It's a very good description of what happens during times of war. Our minds get divided, distracted. We're, we're looking in, in our daily places, daily responsibilities, but ripped and torn. What's going to happen over here? What does that mean to us? Look more carefully at verse 1. The Lord is my light. He says, the Lord is the strength of my life. In verse 13, I would have lost heart unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, I'm emphasizing that for a purpose. He doesn't say, unless I expected to see the goodness of the living in the land of the living. No, he's... He's in a spot where all of those living around him are in a war. He's expecting to see the goodness of the Lord. David is confident. And this is what he's confident. Not his own battle ingenuity, but he is confident in his commanding officer, who is the Lord. And he places his confidence. In this, I'm going to be confident in the Lord. I'm going to trust this and put it in his hands. There's an old adage that says, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Now, when you're not on your knees and you think, don't worry, God, I can handle this all by myself. Go help somebody who really needs your help. You are the weakest you'll ever be standing in your own self-righteous strength. But show weakness enough to lean heavily upon your God. And you are never stronger than at that moment. You may remember that Peter tried to be strong when Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me before the night's over. Oh, Lord, the other guys might do that. You know them and I know them, but you know me. I'm the rock, remember? And he fell. We are warned in 1 Corinthians 10, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. And so David is confident and he says, the Lord is my light. What a, what, a great, what a great picture of God. The Lord is my light. He probably wrote this at night when things were dark. The other night I noticed that all of Baghdad had a blackout. And we thought, oh, it's something that we did. The coalition forces did. And actually it was something that the enemy did. Thinking it's under darkness that we're going to get scared. I like this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Oftentimes, at night when we can't see. That's when fear mounts up against us, doesn't it? David wrote in Psalm 30, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Now, light speaks of a number of things. Number one, it speaks of, uh, of God's glory. It speaks of, of God's holiness. But I think it also speaks of God's knowledge. That God is ultimately enlightened. He knows everything. He sees everything. There's nothing that is hidden that God doesn't know about every motivation. Now, what does that mean to me and you? Well, it means a lot of things. Number one, it means that God heard what you said to your wife this morning. When you thought nobody else heard it, God was there going, hmm. God saw the video you watched last night. God was there when you gave that face to that driver who cut you off on the road. As he was there when he saw my face when that driver... (laughs) Hebrews says, All things are naked and open before the eyes of him 
with whom we must give an account. It means something else, though. It also means because the Lord is my light and knows and is enlightened and sees all, that God sees your son over there on the battlefield, mother, father, your husband who's there, your brother or sister. He's there. He sees it all. And notice, the Lord is the strength of my life, David writes here. Better translation, He is my strong fortress, my impenetrable bunker. And this is what it means. At the point I'm weak, God is strong. At the point I'm vulnerable, God is powerful. And if we can learn that, Lord, I'm not strong. I need to be confident because at the point of my weakness, that's where you step in and I've got to let you step in quickly, now, immediately, and carry me through. A few years ago, the director of the YMCA in western Pennsylvania was Dr. George McCoslin. He was working 85 hours a week. Why? Because the Y was losing money. He was losing membership. They were having staff infighting problems. He was trying to solve them, and he'd work and work, and it got worse and worse. He went to a counselor. The counselor says, George, you're going to have a nervous breakdown unless somehow you can learn to turn this stuff over to God and lean on Him. Well, those were good words of advice, but George didn't know how to do that exactly. A couple days later, he just took a walk out in the woods, western Pennsylvania, took a a notepad and a pen, walked and walked and got out where it's green and the trees are there and the city's way behind him. And he sat down under a tree and he wrote a letter to God. Dear God, I hereby resign as the executive director of the universe. (laughs) Signed, George. And he tells his friends, and wonder of wonders, God accepted my resignation. (laughs) You know, some of you need to turn in your resignation. Some of you have been trying to carry the whole thing on your shoulders, be it a war or a personal issue or the economic quandary you find yourself in. It's time to resign. So vigilance number one. Confidence number two. The third step is the step of reverence. Look at verse four. One thing I have desired of the Lord. Now keep in mind, this is during a battle. And that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in His temple. For in the time of trouble, He will hide me in His pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he will hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy upon me and answer me. A couple of words stick out to me in those verses desired, seek, and inquire. All of those words describe David's humble worship of the Lord, reverence for God, seeking the Lord. You know, it is very easy to lose sight of God during a war. Why? Because the whole concept overwhelms us The key is to let God overwhelm it. I'll never forget the night somebody showed me this illustration. He took a Bible and he said, you can take a Bible 
And though the Bible is infinitely smaller than the working diameter of the sun at any given moment, the Bible, if you put it close enough, will obscure the glory of the sun. All you got to do is cover your eyes with it right up to it, and that's all you see is leather. But if you were to take this object, as small as it is, and push it out 93 million miles from the earth next to the sun and look at it, no comparison. The problem so often is that we let the glory, the truth of God, our worship and trust get obscured, overwhelmed by putting the problem right here and walking around with it all day long. Notice what David says in the midst of this battle. One thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek. Notice how emphatic he is. He's he's pursuing God with a single-minded passion. Listen to that verse in the Amplified Bible. One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, inquire for, and insistently require. Some of the reading that I've done has suggested that very often wars are won well in advance before troops are deployed and shots are fired. They are won in the strategic war rooms of the leaders. David must have realized that because while the shots are being fired around him, in his private times of worship, David fights his battles on his knees in this time of prayer and seeking the Lord. There's a verse that Jesus said to his disciples that keeps coming back to my mind during these times. Jesus said, Men ought always to pray and not to faint. Men ought always to pray and not to lose heart, give up, faint. I know you've noticed this in your own heart as I have in my life, that prayer is often our last resort rather than our first response. Have you noticed that? And have you noticed how people talk about prayer? There's nothing left to do but pray. You're talking about the big guns here. There's nothing left but the biggest possible thing you could ever do in life, pray. Somebody once said the tragedy of life is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. One thing I will seek and inquire and insistently require. He's seeking the Lord. When London was being bombed in World War II and uh, there was piles of rubbles all over the city, one, one British church put a great sign out front that said, if your knees are knocking, kneel on them. That was in a war-torn city. Verse 4, I draw your attention to that. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold or to look at, to gaze at, the beauty of the Lord. Another translation, to gaze at the delightfulness of God. Now watch this. He's in a war. He's surrounded by the ugliness of war. And in the midst of that travesty and the ugliness of armies and violence being breathed out, he is gazing on the beauty and the delightfulness of God. Boy, I know a lot of people that fail to notice the beauty of the Lord. Oh, they're Christians. 
You know, they come to church, they carry Bibles, they sing songs, but they only seem to behold ugliness in life. They, they, they notice all of the black dots on all of the white sheets in the world. All of the specks, all of the warts, all of the flaws. One author by the name of Bruce Larson calls these people gray people. Gray people. Because there's no color to them. There's no life to them. They're, everything's drab. Ugly. Here's David in a war saying, oh, I just want to behold the beauty, the delightfulness of God. I want to read something to you that is a, a news report from Amman, Jordan. You typically don't hear about this during this time. You've probably not heard anything about it. But there are some Christians in Iraq. I met with some of the churches there when I was there several years ago. I preached at one of the churches. I even gave an altar call at one of the churches. It was a very, very wonderful time of fellowship. And the believer, it's not easy to be a believer in Iraq. The, the regime has squelched them and called them all sorts of inflammatory things like pro-Israel, pro-West, just because they're not Muslims. A reporter, David Freeman, reporting about the Christians in Iraq, said this, quote, Morale among the people we have spoken to is higher than we have expected. One Christian said this, On Sunday, March 23rd, some of our friends went to church in the morning during the Lord's Prayer as they finished the words and deliver us from evil. They heard a terrible explosion not far away. They know that God is with them, protecting them and encouraging them. One man said that at the beginning of the conflict, everyone in the congregation was feeling drained and worn down with fear. But as they felt God speaking to them, telling them to be encouragers for other believers, their strength has returned and now they feel stronger than they did before the war started. Now think about that. In the midst of the ugliness of war, there's a pocket of believers beholding the beauty of the Lord in that place. Step number four is the step of obedience. Obedience. Verse 8. When you said, that is, when you, God, said, when you said, seek my face, My heart said to you, Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me as such as breathe out violence. Now what I want you to notice is the the quick response of David's heart to what he feels God speaking to him. Verse 8, as soon as you said, seek my face, my heart responded in obedience and said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to seek your face, O Lord. Your face, O Lord, will I seek. I read and reread that, and to me, it's as if David is saying, the war that I am in, Lord, has amplified your voice in my heart. I hear you better than I've ever heard you before. And you're telling me, in the midst of all that's going on around me, to seek your face. Have you found that to be true? Trouble has a way of arresting your attention like nothing else in your life. 
C.S. Lewis was right. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but God shouts to us in our suffering. Pain, said Lewis, is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I've got to tell you something. Every day when I turn on that clicker and I watch the news reports come up, God shouts to me of the brevity of life as they talk about casualties. God shouts to me about misplaced priorities as people are left homeless. God shouts to us about the reality of hell as you see buildings and vehicles burning as just a preview of eternal attractions for some. Nothing quite gets our attention or speaks to us like a time of trouble. Something else, too, I was thinking about in this line. Because of the overwhelming nature of war, we as humans tend to be reactive, instinctive, and not necessarily obedient. During times of catastrophe, we react and often, often lay aside priorities like reading our Bible daily, praying daily, fellowshipping with other believers, witnessing and talking to other people about Christ. Here we are glued to the television set, watching the embedded reporters. I do it too. And some of us have a greater vested interest in this. We, we scan the video clips to see if we recognize that soldier. I've done that. Some of the soldiers that I know that are there, is that so-and-so? Some of you are thinking, is that my son? Is that my husband? You're arrested by it. You're caught by it. Maybe God is saying to you, hey, look at my face Look in this direction. Focus now upon me. Seek my face. Because i got to tell you something. Peace will not come by getting information from CNN. Peace will only come by transformation that comes by obedience to heaven. That's the peace David is discovering. Look at verse 10. It's an interesting thing to say here. In the, in the line of this, when my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. He said, Lord, I'm going to be obedient to you. You told me to seek you. I'm going to do it. And uh, even though my parents aren't around, everybody's forsaken me. Even my parents, you're going to take me up. You may be at a point in your life where you're not subject to anybody. Nobody has to tell you what to do. Nobody gets to tell you what to do. Your parents aren't around. No authority over you. You still need to be obedient to God. And you and I need to be obedient to God, not just during times of peace, but right now. As God says, seek my face, pray, look for my will. Do that. Franklin Graham told me a story about the time he was crossing the border right after the Rwandan Civil War when up to a million people were slaughtered. He was crossing the border into Uganda. In the back of a pickup truck was a little girl clutching a blanket, swaying back and forth. She had just watched her parents get hacked to death with machetes. And she was singing something. And it was in French because of the language that had been taught there over the years. And he didn't understand what she was singing. She asked one of, he asked one of the soldiers, find out what she's saying. What's she singing? And he listened carefully and he said, she is saying, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. 
Can you imagine being stripped of everything in life, even your parents who have by death, by murder, in a sense, forsaken you, and she has submitted herself to the Lord, seeking God's face? Before we move on and close, just let me ask you this. Is there an area of your life that you have failed to bring unto the obedience of Christ? Is there something God has been speaking to you about in the past? You just sort of let it ride. You let it slide. You didn't do much about it. Then, boom, this war happened. And you're uneasy. You're shaken. You're distracted. The Lord is saying, seek His face. Look at that area. Get that under control. Bring that under obedience to me. There's a final step, and that is the step of expectance. The fifth and final firm step during a time of a battle is to be expectant. And we close with verse 13 and 14. I would have lost heart, said David, unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Now David is talking to himself here. I like that. My dad used to say, I like to talk to myself because I want to hear a wise man speak. (laughs) And I like to speak to a wise man. David is speaking and he's wise because he's receiving the exhortation to his own heart. He's saying, give God time to work here. Entrust this situation, this battle to God and wait on Him. Let your expectation be from Him. Let's see what He'll do. Let's see what the outcome will be. Let's see what His sovereign hand brings. I'm not going to jump to conclusions. I'm going to wait. And oh, how we hate to wait. I've heard the reports. Second day. Why isn't the war over? It's been two days already. Come on, you can't drag this thing out. Just like you can't drag any show out. Wait and let your expectation be from Him. David, Psalm 62 said, My soul, wait silently for God alone. For my expectation is from Him. He is my only rock and salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. If you have not entrusted to God this historic time of this war that we're engaged in overseas, no matter what you think about it, whether you are for it as a just war or absolutely opposed to it, if you have not entrusted and your expectation is from Him, I feel so sorry and bad for you. You're like a ship floating out without any moorings. Nothing to tether to. And then I would add, you ought to expect to see God's goodness somehow revealed, displayed in the midst of this. There's a poem that says, As children bring their broken toys with tears for us to mend, I brought my broken dreams to God because He was my friend. But then instead of leaving Him in peace to work alone, I hung around and tried to help with ways that were my own. At last, I snatched them back and cried, How can you be so slow? My child, he said, What could I do? You never did let go. I meet a lot of people, gray people, like Bruce Larson called them. And they got the whole world 
They haven't resigned yet. It's on their shoulders. It weighs them down every time you see them. There are others that I see. And it's not like they live in some dark cave. They're aware of what's going on. They're very up to speed. Some are very involved. But there's just that. You've seen it. It's the sparkle in their eye that comes from a burden laid upon shoulders stronger than themselves. And I'm telling you, live that way. War is a slippery business. You need a firm foundation. These five steps will give it to you. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. Our Heavenly Father, now once again, we entrust the future into your hands. Lord, we have been seeking from the news networks the latest information. Tonight you're saying it's time now to seek my face. Lord, we have been overwhelmed, some of us, with the war. It's now time to let you overwhelm the war. To move it out to its proper perspective and dimension so we can see God working. We can see the Lord as our impenetrable fortress, our bunker, our high tower. Lord, you're our light. You know it all. You know what's going on in secret places, discussions that are being held at high levels. We don't, Lord. And so, rather than trusting any person or group, we trust you. Lord, forgive us for any arrogance that has caused us to trust in ourselves as a nation. And so tonight, at least this little group in this little part of the world, we want to lay it on your strong shoulders. There is no softer pillow for tired hearts than your promises. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.